Section 10. Ingersoll's Lecture on Intellectual Development, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Ingersoll's Lecture on Intellectual Development, Part 2 of 2, from the book Lectures of Colonel Robert Green Ingersoll, Volume 2. A little while ago I stood by the tomb of the first Napoleon, a magnificent tomb of gilt and gold, fit almost for a dead deity, and here was a great circle, and in the bottom there, in a sarcophagus, rested at last the ashes of that restless man. I looked at that tomb, and I thought about the career of the greatest soldier of the modern world. As I looked, in imagination I could see him walking up and down the banks of the Seine, contemplating suicide. I could see him at Toulon. I could see him at Paris, putting down the mob. I could see him at the head of the army of Italy. I could see him crossing the bridge of Lodi, with the tricolor in his hand. I saw him in Egypt, fighting battles under the shadow of the pyramids. I saw him returning. I saw him conquer the Alps and mingle the eagles of France with the eagles of Italy. I saw him at Mareno. I saw him at Austerlitz. I saw him in Russia, where the infantry of the snow and the blast smote his legions when death rode the icy winds of winter. I saw him at Leipzig, hurled back upon Paris, banished, and I saw him escape from Elba and retake an empire by the force of his genius. I saw him at the field of Waterloo, where fate and chance combined to wreck the fortune of their former king. I saw him at St. Helena, with his hands behind his back, gazing out upon the sad and solemn sea, and I thought of all the widows he had made, of all the orphans, of all the tears that had been shed for his glory. And I thought of the woman, the only woman who ever loved him, pushed from his heart by the cold hand of ambition, and I said to myself as I gazed, I would rather have been a French peasant, and worn wooden shoes, and lived in a little hut, but with the vine running over the door, and the purple grapes growing red in the amorous kisses of the autumn sun, I would rather have been that poor French peasant, to sit in my door, with my wife knitting by my side, and my children upon my knees with their arms around my neck. I would rather have lived and died unnoticed and unknown, except by those who loved me, and gone down to the voiceless silence of the dreamless dust, I would rather have been that French peasant than to have been that imperial impersonation of force and murder who covered Europe with blood and tears. I tell you I had rather make somebody happy. I would rather have the love of somebody. I would rather go to the forest far away and build me a little cabin, build it myself, 
and daub it with mud and live there with my wife and children i had rather go there and live by myself our little family and have a little path that led down to the spring where the water bubbled out day and night like a little poem from the heart of the earth a little hut with some hollyhocks at the corner with their bannered bosoms open to the sun and with the thrush in the air like a song of joy in the morning i would rather live there and have some lattice work across the window so that the sunlight would fall checkered on the baby in the cradle i would rather live there and have my soul erect and free than to live in a palace of gold and wear the crown of imperial power and know that my soul was slimy with hypocrisy it is not necessary to be rich and great and powerful in order to be happy if you will treat your wife like a splendid flower she will fill your life with a perfume and with joy i believe in the democracy of the fireside i believe in the republicism of home in the equality of man and woman in the equality of husband and wife and for this i am denounced by the sentinels upon the walls of zion they say there must be a head to the family i say no equal rights for man and wife and where there is really love there is liberty and where the idea of authority comes in you will find that love has spread its pinions and flown forever it is a splendid thing for me to think that when a woman really loves a man he never grows old in her eyes she always sees the gallant gentleman that won her hand and heart and when a man really and truly loves a woman she does not grow old to him through the wrinkles of years he sees the face he loved and won that is all there is in this world all the rest amounts to nothing it is a tale told by an idiot signifying nothing you take from the family love and nothing is left there must be equality there must be no master there must be no servant there must be equality and kindness the man should be infinitely tender towards the woman and why because she cannot go at hard work she cannot make her own living she has squandered her wealth of beauty and youth upon him now if women have been slaves what do you say about children children have been the slaves of the slaves i know children that turn pale with fright when they hear their mother's voice children of property children of crime children of sub-cellars children of the narrow streets the flotsam and jetsam upon the wild rude sea of life my heart goes out to them one and all i say they have all the rights we have and one more the right to be protected i believe in governing children by kindness by love by tenderness if a child commits a fault take it in your arms let your heart beat against its heart 
Don't go and talk to it about hell and the bankruptcy of the universe. If your child tells a lie, what of it? Be honest with the child. Tell him you have told hundreds of them yourself. Then your child will not be afraid to tell you when it commits a fault. It will not regard you as old perfection until it gets a few years older and finds you are an old hypocrite. And you cannot put a thick enough veil upon you but what the eyes of childhood will peep through it. They will see. They will find out. And when your child tells a lie, examine yourself, and in all probability you will find that you have been a tyrant. A tyrant father will have liars for his children. A liar is born of tyranny on the one hand and fear on the other. Truth comes from the lips of courage. It is born in confidence and honor. If you want a child to tell you the truth, you want to be a faithful man yourself. You go at your little child, five or six years old, with a stick in your hand. What is he to do? Tell the truth? Then he will get whipped. What is he to do? I thank Mother Nature for putting ingenuity in the mind of a little child, so that when it is attacked by a brutal parent, it throws up a little breastwork in the shape of a lie. That being done by nations, it is called strategy, and many a general wears his honors for having practiced it. And will you deny it to little children to protect themselves from brutal parents? Supposing a man as much larger than we are, larger than child, would come at us with a liberty pole in his hand, and would shout in tones of thunder, Who broke that plate? Every one of us, including myself, would just stand right up and swear either that we never saw that plate, or that it was cracked when we got it. Give a child a chance. There is no other way to have children tell the truth. Tell the truth to them. Keep your contracts with your children the same as you would to your banker. I was up at Grand Rapids, Michigan the other day. There was a gentleman there and his wife who had promised to take their little boy for a ride every night for ten days, or every day for ten days, but they did not do it. They slipped out to the barn and they went without him. The day before I was there, they played the same game on him again. He's a nice little boy, an American boy, a boy with brains, one of those boys that don't take the hatchet story as a fact. He had his own ideas. They fooled him again, and they came around the corner as big as life, man and wife. The little fellow was standing on the doorstep with his nurse, and he looked at them, and he made this remark. There go the two damnedest liars in Grand Rapids. <laughs> I merely tell you this story to show you that children have level heads. They understand this business. Teach your children to tell you the truth. Tell them the truth. If there is one here that ever intends to whip his child, I have a favor to ask. Have your photograph taken when you are in the act, with your red and vulgar face, your brow corrugated, pretending you would rather be whipped yourself. 
have the child's photograph taken too with his eyes streaming with tears and his chin dimpled with fear as a little sheet of water struck by a sudden cold wind and if your child should die i cannot think of a sweeter way to spend an afternoon than to go to the graveyard in the autumn when the maples are clad in pink and gold when the little scarlet runners come like poems out of the breast of the earth go there and sit down and look at that photograph and think of the flesh now dust and how you caned it to writhe in pain and agony i will tell you what i am doing i am doing what little i can to save the flesh of children you have no right to whip them it is not the way and yet some Christians drive their children from their doors if they do wrong, especially if it is a sweet, tender girl. I believe there is no instance on record of any veal being given for the return of a girl. Some Christians drive them from their doors, and then go down upon their knees and ask God to take care of their children. I will never ask God to take care of my children unless I am doing my level best in that same direction. Some Christians act as though they thought when the Lord said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, that he had a rawhide under his mantle. They act as if they thought so. That is all wrong. I tell my children this, go where you may, commit what crime you may, fall to what depths of degradation you may, I can never shut my arms, my heart, or my door to you. As long as I live, you shall have one sincere friend. Do not be afraid to tell anything wrong you have done. Ten to one, if I have not done the same thing. I am not perfection, and it is necessary to sin in order to have sympathy. I am glad I have committed sin enough to have sympathy. The sternness of perfection I do not want. I am going to live so that my children can come to my grave and truthfully say, he who sleeps here never gave us one moment of pain. Whether you call that religion or infidelity, suit yourselves. That is the way I intend to do it. When I was a little fellow, most everybody thought that some days were too sacred for the young ones to enjoy themselves in. That was the general idea. Sunday used to commence Saturday night at sundown, under the old text, the evening and the morning were the first day. They commenced then, I think, to get a good ready. When the sun went down on Saturday night, darkness ten thousand times deeper than ordinary night fell upon the house. The boy that looked the sickest was regarded as the most pious. You could not crack hickory nuts that night, and if you were caught chewing gum it was another evidence of the total depravity of the human heart. It was a very solemn evening. We would sometimes sing, Another Day Has Passed, 
Everybody looked as though they had the dyspepsia. You know, lots of people think they are pious just because they are bilious, as Mr. Hood says. It was a solemn night, and the next morning the solemnity had increased. Then we went to church, and the minister was in a pulpit about twenty feet high. If it was in the winter there was no fire, it was not thought proper to be comfortable while you were thanking the Lord. The minister commenced at firstly, and ran up to about twenty-fourthly, and then he divided it up again, and then he made some concluding remarks, and then he said lastly, and when he said lastly, he was about half through. Then we had what we called the catechism, the chief end of man. I think that has a tendency to make a boy kind of bubble up cheerfully. We sat along on a bench with our feet about eight inches from the floor. The minister said, Boys, do you know what becomes of the wicked? We all answered as cheerfully as grasshoppers sing in Minnesota. Yes, sir. Do you know, boys, that you all ought to go to hell? Yes, sir. As a final test, Boys, would you be willing to go to hell if it was God's will? and every little liar said, Yes, sir. The dear old minister used to try to impress upon our minds about how long we would stay there after we got there, and he used to say in an awful tone of voice, Do you know, I think that is what gives them the bronchitis, that tone. You never heard of an auctioneer having it. Suppose that once in a billion of a year's a bird were to come from some far distant clime and carry off in its bill a grain of sand. When the time came when the last animal matter of which this mundane sphere is composed would be carried away, said he, boys, by that time in hell, it would not be sun up. We had this sermon in the morning, and the same one in the afternoon, only he commenced at the other end, then we started home full of doctrine. We went sadly and solemnly back. If it was in the summer and the weather was good and we had been good boys, they used to take us down to the graveyard, and to cheer us up we had a little conversation about coffins and shrouds and worms and bones and dust and I must admit that it did cheer me up when I looked at those sunken graves, those stones, those names half effaced with the decay of years. I felt cheered, for I said, this thing can't last always. Then we had to read a good deal. We were not allowed to read joke books or anything of that kind. We read Baxter's Call to the Unconverted, Fox's Book of Martyrs, Milton's history of the Waldenses, and Jenkins on the Atonement. I generally read Jenkins, and I have often thought that the Atonement ought to be pretty broad in its provisions to cover the case of a man that would write a book like that for a boy. Then we used to go and see how the sun was getting on. When the sun was down, the thing was over. I would sit three or four hours reading Jenkins, and then go out, and the sun would not have gone down perceptibly. I used to think it stuck there out of simple, pure cussedness. 
but it went down at last it had to that was a part of the plan and as the last rim of light would sink below the horizon off would go our hats and we would give three cheers for liberty once again i do not believe in making sunday hateful for children i believe in allowing them to be happy and no day can be so sacred but that the laugh of a child will make it holier still there is no god in the heavens that is pleased at the sadness of childhood you cannot make me believe that you fill their poor little sweet hearts with the fearful doctrine of hell a little child goes out into the garden there is a tree covered with a glory of blossoms and the child leans against it and there is a little bird on the bough singing and swinging and the waves of melody run out of its tiny throat thinking about four little speckled eggs in the nest warmed by the breast of its mate and the air is filled with perfume and that little child leans against that tree and thinks about hell and the worm that never dies think of filling the mind of a child with that infamous dogma where was that doctrine of hell born where did it come from it came from that gentleman in the dugout it was a souvenir from the lower animal i honestly believe that the doctrine of hell was born in the glittering eyes of snakes that run in frightful coils watching for their prey i believe it was born in the yelping and howling and growling and snarling of wild beasts i believe it was born in the grin of hyenas and in the malicious chatter of depraved apes i despise it i defy it and i hate it and when the great ship freighted with the world goes down in the night of death chaos and disaster i will not be guilty of the ineffable meanness of pushing from my breast my wife and children and paddling off in some orthodox canoe i will go down with those i love and with those who love me i will go down with the ship and with my race i will go where there is sympathy i will go with those i love nothing can make me believe that there is any being that is going to burn and torment and damn his children forever no sir you will never make me believe you can divide the world up into saints and sinners and that the saints are all going to heaven and the others to hell i don't believe that you can draw the line you are sometimes in the presence of a great disaster there is a fire at the fourth story window you see the white face of a woman with a child in her arms and humanity calls out for somebody to go to the rescue through that smoke and flame maybe death they don't call for a baptist nor a presbyterian nor a methodist but humanity calls for a man and all at once outsteps somebody that nobody ever did think was much not a very good man and yet he springs up the ladder and is lost in the smoke and a moment afterward he emerges and the cruel serpents of fire climb and hiss around his brave form 
but he goes on and you see that woman and child in his arms and you see them come down and they are handed to the bystanders and he has fainted maybe and the crowd stand hushed as they always do in the presence of a grand action and a moment after the air is rent with a cheer tell me that that man is going to hell who is willing to lose his life merely to keep a woman and child from the torment of a moment's flame tell me that he is going to hell i tell you that it is a falsehood and if anybody says so he is mistaken i have seen upon the battlefield a boy of sixteen years of age struck by the fragment of a shell and life oozing slowly from the ragged lips of his death wound and i have heard him and seen him die with a curse upon his lips and he had the face of his mother in his heart do you tell me that that boy left that field where he died that the flag of his country might wave forever in the air do you tell me that he went from that field where he lost his life in defense of the liberties of men to an eternal hell i tell you it is infamous and such a doctrine as that would tarnish the reputation of a hyena and smirch the fair fame of an anaconda let us see whether we are to believe it or not we had a war a little while ago and there was a draft made and there was many a good christian hired another fellow to take his place hired one that was wicked hired a sinner to go to hell in his place for five hundred dollars while if he was killed he would go to heaven think of that think of a man willing to do that for five hundred dollars i tell you when you come right down to it they have got too much heart to believe it they say they do but they do not appreciate it they do not believe it they would go crazy if they did they would go insane if a woman believed it looking upon her little dimpled darling in the cradle and said nineteen chances in twenty i am raising fuel for hell she would go crazy they don't believe it and can't believe it the old doctrine was that the angels in heaven would become happier as they looked upon those in hell that is not the doctrine now we have civilized it that is not the doctrine what is the doctrine now the doctrine is that those in heaven can look upon the agonies of those in hell whether it is a fire or whatever it is without having the happiness of those in heaven decreased that is the doctrine that is preached to-day in every orthodox pulpit in harrisburg let me put one case and i will be through with this branch of the subject a husband and wife love each other the husband is a good fellow and the wife a splendid woman they live and love each other and all at once he is taken sick and they watch day after day and night after night around his bedside until their property is wasted and finally she has to go to work and she works through eyes blinded with tears and the sentinel of love watches at the bedside of her prince and at the least breath or the least motion she is awake and she attends him night after night and day after day for years and finally he dies and she has him in her arms 
and covers his wasted face with the tears of agony and love. He is a believer, and she is not. He dies, and she buries him, and puts flowers above his grave, and she goes there in the twilight of evening, and she takes her children, and she tells her little boys and girls through her tears how brave and how true and how tender their father was, and finally she dies, and she goes to hell, because she was not a believer, and he goes to the battlements of heaven and looks over and sees the woman who loved him with all the wealth of her love, and whose tears made his dead face holy and sacred, and he looks upon her in the agonies of hell without having his happiness diminished in the least. With all due respect to everybody, I say damn any such doctrine as that. It is infamous. It never ought to be preached. It never ought to be believed. We ought to be true to our hearts, and the best revelation of the infinite is the human heart. Now I come back to where I started from. They used to think that a certain day was too good for a child to be happy in, so they filled the imagination of this child with these horrors of hell. I said, and I say again, no day can be so sacred but that the laugh of a child will make the holiest day more sacred still. Strike with hand of fire, O weird musician, thy harp, strung with Apollo's golden hair, fill the vast cathedral aisles with symphonies, sweet and dim, deft toucher of the organ keys, Blow, bugler, blow, until thy silver notes do touch the skies with moonlit waves, and charm the lovers wandering on the vine-clad hills. But no, your sweetest strains are discords all, compared with childhood's happy laugh, the laugh that fills the eyes with light and every heart with joy. O oh, rippling river of life, thou art the blessed boundary line between the beasts and man, and every wayward wave of thine doth drown some fiend of care. O oh, laughter, divine daughter of joy, make dimples enough in the cheeks of the world to catch and hold and glorify all the tears of grief. I am opposed to any religion that makes them melancholy, that makes children sad, and that fills the human heart with shadow. Give a child a chance. When I was a boy, we always went to bed when we were not sleepy, and we always got up when we were sleepy. Let a child commence at which end of the day they please. That is their business. They know more about it than all the doctors in this world. The voice of nature, when a man is free, is the voice of right. But when his passions have been damned up by custom, the moment that is withdrawn, he rushes to some excess. Let him be free from the first. Let your children grow in the free air, and they will fill your house with perfume. Do not create a child to be a post set in an orthodox row. 
raise investigators and thinkers, not disciples and followers. Cultivate reason, not faith. Cultivate investigation, not superstition. And if you have any doubt yourself about a thing being so, tell them about it. Don't tell them the world was made in six days. If you think six days means six good whiles, then tell them six good whiles. If you have any doubts about anybody being in a furnace and not being burnt, or even getting uncomfortably warm, tell them so. Be honest about it. If you look upon the jawbone of a donkey as not a good weapon, say so. Give a child a chance. If you think a man never went to sea in a fish, tell them so. It won't make them any worse. Be honest. That is all. Don't cram their heads with things that will take them years and years to unlearn. Tell them facts. It is just as easy. It is as easy to find out botany and astronomy and geology and history. It is as easy to find out all these things as to cram their minds with things you know nothing about. And where a child knows what the name of a flower is when he sees it, the name of a bird, and all those things, the world becomes interesting everywhere, and they do not pass by the flowers, they are not deaf to all the songs of birds, simply because they are walking along thinking about hell. We know of no difference between matter and spirit, because we know nothing with certainty about either. Why trouble ourselves about matters of which, however important they may be, we do know nothing and can know nothing? Huxley I tell you, this is a pretty good world if we only love somebody in it, if we only make somebody happy, if we are only honor bright in it, if we have no fear. That is my doctrine. I like to hear children at the table telling what big things they have seen during the day. I like to hear their merry voices mingling with the clatter of knives and forks. I had rather hear that than any opera that was ever put on the stage. I hate this idea of authority. I hate dignity. I never saw a dignified man that was not, after all, an old idiot. Dignity is a mask. A dignified man is afraid that you will know he does not know everything. A man of sense and argument is always willing to admit what he don't know. Why? Because there is so much that he does know. And that is the first step towards learning anything. Willingness to admit what you don't know, and when you don't understand a thing, ask. No matter how small and silly it may look to other people, ask. And after that, you know. A man never is in a state of mind that he can learn until he gets that dignified nonsense out of him. And so I say let us treat our children with perfect kindness and tenderness. Now then, I believe in absolute intellectual liberty, that a man has a right to think and think wrong, provided he does the best he can to think right. That is all. I have no right to say that Mr. Smith shall not think. 
Mr. Smith has no right to say I shall not think. I have no right to go and pull a clergyman out of his pulpit and say, You shall not preach that doctrine. But I have just as much right as he has to say my say. I have no right to lie about a clergyman, and with great modesty I claim, and with some timidity, that he has no right to slander me. That is all. I claim that every man and wife are equal except that she has a right to be protected, that there is nothing like the democracy of the home and the republicism of the fireside, and that a man should study to make his wife's life one perpetual poem of joy, that there should be nothing but kindness and goodness. And then I say that children should be governed by love, by kindness, by tenderness, and by the sympathy of love, kindness, and tenderness. That is the religion I have got, and it is good enough for me whether it suits anybody else in the world or not. I think it is altogether more important to believe in my wife than it is to believe in the master. I think it is altogether more important to love my children than the twelve apostles. That is my doctrine. I may be wrong, but that is it. I think more of the living than I do of the dead. This world is for the living. The grave is not a throne, and a corpse is not a king. The living have a right to control this world. I think a good deal more of today than I do of yesterday, and I think more of tomorrow than I do of this day, because it is nearly gone. That is the way I feel, and this is my creed. The time to be happy is now. The way to be happy is to make somebody else happy, and the place to be happy is here. I never will consent to drink skim milk here with the promise of cream somewhere else. Now, my friends, I have some excuses to offer for the race to which I belong. In the first place, this world is not very well adapted to raising good people. There is but one quarter of it land to start with. It is three times as well adapted to fish culture as it is to man, and of that one quarter there is but a small belt where they raise men of genius. There is one strip from which all the men and women of genius come. When you go too far north, you find no brain. When you go too far south, you find no genius, and there never has been a high degree of civilization except where there is winter. I say that winter is the father and mother of the fireside, the family of nations, and around that fireside blossom the fruits of our race. In a country where they don't need any bedclothes except the clouds, revolution is the normal condition. Not much civilization there. When in the winter I go by a house where the curtain is a little bit drawn, and I look in there and see children poking the fire and wishing they had as many dollars or knives or something else as there are sparks, when I see the old man smoking and the smoke curling above his head like incense from the altar of domestic peace, the other children reading or doing something, and the old lady with her needle and shears, I never pass such a scene that I do not feel a little ache of joy in my heart. A while ago they were talking about annexing San Domingo. 
They said it was the finest soil in the world, and so on. Says I, it don't raise the right kind of folks. You take 5,000 of the best people in the world and let them settle there, and you will see the second generation barefooted with the hair sticking out of the top of their sombreros. You will see them riding barebacked with a rooster under each arm going to a cockfight on Sunday. That is one excuse I have. Another is, I think we came from the lower animals. I'm not dead sure of it. On that question I stand about eight to seven. If there is nothing of the snake or hyena or jackal in man, why would he cut his brother's throat for a difference of belief? Why would he build dungeons and burn the flesh of his brother man with red-hot irons? I think we came from the lower animals. When I first heard that doctrine, I did not like it. I felt sorry for our English friends who would have to trace their pedigree back to the Duke of Orangutan or the Earl of Chimpanzee. But I have read so much about rudimentary bones and rudimentary muscles that I began to doubt about it. Says I, what do you mean by rudimentary muscles? They say a muscle that has gone into bankruptcy. Was it a large muscle? Yes. What did our forefathers use it for? they say, to flap their ears with. After I found that out, I was astonished to find that they had become rudimentary. I know so many people for whom it would be handy today. So many people where that would have been on an exact level with their intellectual development. So after a while I began to like it, and says I to myself, you have got to come to it. I thought, after all, I had rather belong to a race of people that came from skullless vertebrae and the dim Laurentian period, that wiggled without knowing they were wiggling, that began to develop, and came up by a gradual development until they struck this gentleman in the dugout, coming up slowly, up, up, up until, for instance, they produced such a man as Shakespeare, he who harvested all the fields of dramatic thought, and after whom all others have been only gleaners of straw, he who found the human intellect dwelling in a hut, touched it with the wand of his genius, and it became a palace, producing him and hundreds of others I might mention, with the angels of progress leaning over the far horizon, beckoning this race of work and thought. I had rather belong to a race commencing at the skullless vertebrae, producing the gentleman in the dugout, and so on up, than to have descended from a perfect pair upon which the Lord had lost money from that day to this. I had rather belong to a race that is going up than to one that is going down. I would rather belong to one that commenced at the skullless vertebrae and started for perfection than to belong to one that started from perfection and started for the skullless vertebrae. These are the excuses I have for my race, and taking everything into consideration, I think we have done extremely well. Let us have more liberty and free thought. Free thought will give us truth. It is too early in the history of the world to write a creed. Our fathers were intellectual slaves. Our fathers were intellectual serfs. There never has been a free generation on the globe. Every creed you have got bears the mark of a whip and chain and faggot. 
There has been no creed written by a free brain. Wait until we have had two or three generations of liberty, and it will then be time enough to seize the swift horse of progress by the bridle, and say, thus far and no farther. And in the meantime, let us be kind to each other. Let us be decent towards each other. We are all travelers on the great plain we call life, and there is nobody quite sure what road to take. Not just dead sure, you know. There are lots of guideboards on the plain, and you find thousands of people swearing today that their guideboard is the only board that shows the right direction. I go and talk to them, and they say, You go that way, or you will be damned. I go to another, and they say, You go this way, or you will be damned. I find them all fighting and quarreling and beating each other, and then I say, let us cut down all these guideboards. What, they say? Leave us without any guideboards? I say, yes, let every man take the road he thinks is right, and let everybody else wish him a happy journey. Let us part friends. I say to you tonight, my friends, that I have no malice upon this subject, not a particle. I simply wish to express my thoughts. The world has grown better just in proportion as it is happier. The world has grown better just in proportion as it has lost superstition. The world has grown better just in the proportion that the sacerdotal class has lost influence, just exactly. The world has grown better just in proportion that secular ideas have taken possession of the world. The world has grown better just in proportion that it has ceased talking about the visions of the clouds and talked about the realities of the earth. The world has grown better just in proportion that it has grown free, and I want to do what little I can in my feeble way to add another flame to the torch of progress. I do not know, of course, what will come, but if I have said anything tonight that will make a husband love his wife better, I am satisfied. If I have said anything that will make a wife love her husband better, I am satisfied. If I have said anything that will add one more ray of joy to life, I am satisfied. If I have said anything that will save the tender flesh of a child from a blow, I am satisfied. If I have said anything that will make us more willing to extend to others the right we claim for ourselves, I am satisfied. I do not know what inventions are in the brain of the future. I do not know what garments of glory may be woven for the world in the loom of the years to be. We are just on the edge of the great ocean of discovery. I do not know what is to be discovered. I do not know what science will do for us. I do know that science did just take a handful of sand and make the telescope and with it read all the starry leaves of heaven. I know that science took the thunderbolts from the hands of Jupiter, and now the electric spark, freighted with thought and love, flashes under the waves of the sea. I know that science stole a tear from the cheek of unpaid labor, converted it into steam, 
and created a giant that turns with tireless arms the countless wheels of toil. I know that science broke the chains from human limbs and gave us instead the forces of nature for our slaves. I know that we have made the attraction of gravitation work for us. We have made the lightnings our messengers. We have taken advantage of fire and flames and wind and sea. These slaves have no backs to be whipped. They have no hearts to be lacerated. They have no children to be stolen, no cradles to be violated. I know that science has given us better houses. I know it has given us better pictures and better books. I know it has given us better wives and better husbands and more beautiful children. I know it has enriched a thousandfold our lives, and for that reason I am in favor of intellectual liberty. I know not, I say, what discoveries may lead the world to glory, but I do know that from the infinite sea of the future never a greater or grander blessing will strike this bank and shoal of time than liberty for man, woman, and child. Ladies and gentlemen, I have delivered this lecture a great many times. Clergymen have attended and the editors of religious newspapers, and they have gone away and written in their papers and declared in their pulpits that in this lecture I advocated universal adultery, they have gone away and said it was obscene and disgusting. Between me and my clerical maligners, between me and my religious slanderers, I leave you, ladies and gentlemen, to judge. End of Ingersoll's Lecture on Intellectual Development This is a LibriVox recording, read for you by Ted DeLorme in Fort Mill, South Carolina, on April nineteenth, two 2009.